everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelitz and Senna's part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are happy to have on not only my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink, but also one of the most genuinely nicest individuals I've come across in the tennis arena. She's covered the Australian Open, Roland Garros, Wimbledon, U.S. Open, ATP Finals, WTA Finals, Labor Cup, Fed Cup, Indian Wells, Miami, Cincinnati, Washington, D.C., Delray Beach, Houston, and Newport. Deep breath and has written for such outlets as Tennis Magazine, Tennis.com, ESPNW.com, ATPTour.com, WTATennis.com, and TennisNow.com. Please welcome back returning guests to the pod, Blair Henley. Blair, thank you for uh, hanging out with us tonight. Uh, Thanks for letting me, and thank you for that introduction, because I will tell you, yes, like the tennis stuff, that's what I strive for, and it's great when that stuff happens, but... I don't think, I mean, this not to start off on too cheesy of a note, but it doesn't mean a whole lot if you aren't making an impact and, you know, having those nice relationships with people. So that means a ton to me. Thank you. Well, thank you for, for again, your time tonight and talking tennis. I, I want to start, we're not too far from Newport. Um, and Steve and I just had our recent segment um, and he talked about his experience, not only this year, but especially kind of behind the scenes when he was inducted um, in 2017. I know you love that place. I want to hear your thoughts. You, you always tell me, David, you got to get down there. You got to get up there actually from Chicago. Um, but before we even talk about that, there is some footage out there of you hitting on the grass courts and Justine Hennon's one-handed backhand took it from the Blair Henley one-handed backhand. I mean, that one-hander is perfect. Oh man. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I'm assuming that that came from Craig Shapiro, who uh, was out with his cell phone recording. Um, no, it was it was fun. I don't, I don't know if you guys get to hit on grass very often or have spent much time on grass. It's definitely a different experience. And quick side note, I don't want to segue for you, but the grass is all new in Newport. Um, in between the last time they had the tournament there and this year, they resurfaced every single court. And when I tell you it is like night and day, and you could see it in the quality of tennis. Uh, I hit on those grass courts probably two or three years ago. I mean, I like to say that, you know, a decent player can play on anything. I struggled big time. <laughs> um, so the, the new surface makes a massive difference. It was a lot of fun to hit on it. It's a little kinder on the body, which at this point in my life, I appreciate. And I can tell you that the players, like the real players, not this player, the, the real players appreciated the new surface. I mean, the reviews were glowing. No, we heard about the new surface there. Um, you, you know, again, you've, you've said to me numerous times, David, you have to get up there. Steve obviously has special feelings towards that place, as, as obviously any tennis fan would. What are some of the things that really uh, make you look forward to going back every year? Well, I mean, I have to credit the staff there for hiring me when, I mean, I think maybe I had two tournaments under my belt uh, and they, so they sort of took a chance on me and trusted me with these pillars of the game of tennis, because not only do I get to do a lot of the on-court hosting for the Hall of Fame Open, I have been, I will use this word, I've been blessed to be able to interact with the people being inducted because so many of them are people that I I mean, I used to read Steve Flink articles. I, I mean, I grew up watching these people on television to be able to be in front of, you know, a group of people asking Billie Jean King a question. It does not escape me what a privilege 
that is. Um, so the fact that they took me on at the very beginning and entrusted me with that, and it's sort of grown from there. We've, I've also been able to do a series of, we would call them uh, museum minutes. So it's like a one minute segment where we highlight kind of an unusual, maybe an artifact you might not see if you were going through. It's not one of the things that you're thinking, oh, wow, that's this huge thing up on the wall. So some of the things in the drawers that you might miss if you were going through the museum, that has been incredibly educational. I mean, to learn about the napkin, that was one of my favorite ones that I did. Um, I don't know if you want, I can tell you the backstory. It's the Arthur Ashe napkin. And it's in one of the drawers in the Hall of Fame. And it has all these signatures on it. And the story behind it is, I think he was at his 25th reunion, maybe high school reunion, and everyone wanted his autograph. And he said, I will only give you my autograph if you also give me your autograph. And so it's all the autographs. It gives me chills just saying it, all the autographs of his classmates. So it has been so educational in addition to just sort of being there and, and the, the place itself is amazing. But I have learned a lot in that role. Um, and so I'm very thankful that they've allowed me to keep coming back. <laughs> Steve, you, uh, you did you know about the napkin story? Uh, not in the detail that uh, Blair just described it, not at all surprising given what I, you know, the Arthur Ashe that I knew. Uh, and he's very humble and, and he, he never liked to really call attention to himself. And that's the kind of thing that was very typical of Arthur. So I buy a quick story, Blair, that you might enjoy related to that is a slightly different track. But four years ago, when I did go in, uh, they, they have that autograph session i don't know if you're aware of that on the side I, I, at least then they did i maybe they've switched the day but the day before we would all sit in the museum and sign these autographs yes yes and it was a card it's like an autograph card everybody signs it and, and typical of kim kleisters whom you've interviewed and you know she uh, she said well if we're going to do this i think we should all get a copy in other words those are given away to fans who come through the museum she wanted one for her one for andy one for me one for monique kaufman that, that's exactly what happened we got them and Kept them, and I kind of treasure it. I, oh, that's, that's so cool! So cool. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, so so cool. Um, leaving Newport, and for those who want to listen to more of it, um, the the segment, check out the one that Steve and I did because Steve kind of unveiled the curtain a little bit about what it's like being inducted, and it was pretty cool. Um, listen to that episode. So, uh, David, pretty quick, cool uh, quick other interjection too that I would like to commend Blair on is that she what she didn't mention was. And I don't know whether you saw these, David, but on the Hall of Fame website during when the pandemic was hitting big time, oh. she did some nice interviews, very relaxed. I mean, you had Stan, right? You had Kim Kleisters. You did a bunch of these that I thought were really nicely done. And you came across well, you know, and they, they were relaxed with you. And I, I really enjoyed those interviews. Oh, I absolutely, I absolutely saw those. She did some fun stuff with, with her uh, good friend, Nick McCarville. She had... Blair, Blair was keeping uh, us tennis fans plenty busy during the pandemic. So we yeah, tried. thank you for doing all that. Thank you. No, I, I'm glad. I'm glad people enjoyed them. That was the whole idea. I, I know that I was missing tennis during that time. So I'm glad, glad it was enjoyed. I oh. thought, I, yeah, I thought it was the timing was perfect. I was hoping they were going to keep going and you, you'd get doing even more, but they were really welcome. Perfect timing. Oh, well, thank you. That's great to hear from, from a hall of famer himself. Love it. I, I want to transfer to another um, topic here, and, and it's more it's more about Blair. We had a cover story on Tennis Magazine recently about a youngster that all of us Americans 
are so, so fired up about. And that is Sebastian Corda. Um, you know, he's the, the kid has already accomplished quite a bit for only being 21 years old, round of 16 of two majors. Um, very close to making the, the quarters at Wimbledon. He was finalist in Delray, quarters in Miami with wins over Fabio Fanini and Diego Schwartzman. Um, when you were doing your research and writing, uh, what were some of the things that really stood out to you? Uh, and did you try to get the secret sauce from his parents to see they're doing something right with all those kids? It's unbelievable. I, I asked for the secret sauce uh, in essence. And because I, I, I will say one thing, I don't, I don't think going forward, we're, we're going to hear much from Peter. He really wants it to be Sebi's journey. And I have a lot of respect for that. Um, I also understand why people want to talk to him because it was, you know, he's the one who sort of molded Sebi along with uh, his wife Regina who actually did a lot of the heavy lifting because when Sebi transitioned from hockey to tennis Peter was on tour caddying for Jessica yep. so Regina did a lot of of the foundational work um and the sort of some of the hallmarks of his game he he says he tries to be as quiet as possible that was one thing that she told him um, when she was, you know, working with him on the court, which I thought was interesting because I think a lot of times you hear coaches say, you know, I want to hear your feet. I want to hear your feet moving. And she was saying the exact opposite. Like, I don't want to hear your feet. I want you to be so light on your toes that, that we don't, you don't even see what's happening. The opponent can't even see what, what you're doing on the, or hear what you're doing on the other side of the net. Um, there was no concern with what people thought which I find to be in a lot of exceptional athletes, a, a key piece of the process. Uh, Peter will say he, he won't go into some details. You know, I, I asked him, I was like, you know, if there's a weakness, if there's something that needs to be worked on beyond, you know, if you're looking at him, you can say, okay, well, maybe the serve could add some miles per hour, a little more consistency, um, you know, things like that. But he said, his quote was, you know, if you go to a, a Michelin star restaurant, the chef, and you ask to see the chef after a great meal, the chef is going to come out and say, thank you very much, but he's not going to tell you how he made it. <laughs> and that is, that is what he said to me uh, when I tried to get some more details about mechanically or long-term, what are we looking at? What is gonna be the secret to going from where he is right now to where he wants to be, which I, I think he's capable of being the very best. Um, so again, I was jumping around a little bit there, but he, said along the way, people thought he was bananas. Um, <laughs> he used the word crazy, um, you know, bonkers, bananas, whatever you want to say. People were, were thinking, like, why are you, why are you doing it this way? Because Sebi got a late start. He right. wasn't, uh, I mean, I think he was 10 when he first started to really play. I mean, he had, you know, batted balls around on the court, but he wasn't, it wasn't until he was 10 until he spent a ton of time on the court but they wouldn't let him spend a ton of time on the court. So he was on the court daily, but it was maybe an hour at a time. And I, so I asked Peter, I was like, so like, how long did you limit it to an hour? And he was like, Oh, like through, through when he finished juniors. <laughs> was it was like, interesting. Yeah. Cause I think they live really, they live right near IMG, but he's not an IMG Academy kid. Correct. Uh, and an interesting note on that. Peter made him grow up playing on, not made him, I shouldn't say that. I uh, Sebi obviously wanted this badly, um, but played on clay courts. They had a clay court near their house and that is where he learned how to play. And 
It was interesting. I was I was thinking about Sebi actually when I was reading as as Hubert Hercotch was making his run at Wimbledon, and I was reading his ATP bio, and he also grew up playing on clay, uh, and said as a result he has the endurance. He can battle out battle it out from the baseline, but he also learned how to have the variety. Um, so I I think that that was a really smart thing uh, on the court's behalf. And it was also because they wanted to protect his body. Uh, so again, I feel like I could, I don't wanna go take too much of your time on this, but I, I found the whole uh, development process of his to be uh, the opposite of mainstream. <laughs> it was just very unique and unusual, but everything had a reason. But the clay court was to develop his game in different ways that you don't always see in American players um, and also to protect his body, which listen, that's that can be just as big a problem as a technical issue on your forehand. So it, it all sort of makes sense in the end, but Peter will be the first to say that, you know, people thought I was crazy. Uh, so I guess all's well that ends well. <laughs> yeah, and, and Steve, you've, you've said this before. I mean, barring any uh, unforeseen injury, I mean, this kid's top 10 material in your eyes, 100%. Right? Oh, definitely, definitely. But, I, you know, Blair alluding to injuries, I'm a little concerned. There's a few niggling ones this year, and that cost him any chance to do anything at the French after winning the tournament the week before. I thought that was too bad. However, uh, he's so impressive. He's so well-rounded. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, the forehand can go off a little bit here and there, but it mechanically he's so sound and, I think Blair's right. The serve could get bigger, but I, I'm very encouraged. I'm very encouraged. I like the attitude yeah. and so different Blair. I don't know how much you saw of his dad, but I watched a lot of Peter Corda and I saw him play some really fantastic matches against Pete Sampras in the nineties, you know, particularly in 1997 when Pete beat uh, Corda, Pete Sampras beat Peter Corda <laughs> at Wimbledon in five sets on his way to the title. And then Corda beat Sampras at the U.S. Open in five sets. And then they had another great match toward the end of the year. It was a really interesting matchup. And he, and he was so different from his son. So flashy, so unpredictable. And he did his wild scissors kicks. And that's what I find so interesting about the kid is that obviously his dad is very influential, but he's a different personality altogether. I, it's, it's Regina that she is kind of the, the silent stealthy one from, uh, yeah. from what I understand. And, and I think that's, yeah. Yeah. The, the wild card, the wild card here and everyone is interested and everyone asks Sebi in any press conference they have is, you know, he has two, uh, two other people in his corner that are, that are pretty uh, widely known and their name is Steffi and Andre. Did you get uh, any insight on, on what the, those two are doing? I know he says Andre talks to him pretty much before every match and they game plan. Yes. Uh, this, I, I asked a lot of questions on this topic to, to try to dig a little deeper. I, I didn't get very deep uh, on <laughs> this particular thing. And I, and I appreciate that there are certain things you sort of want to keep for yourself, but the biggest thing, again, after my multiple questions that, that I got out of his relationship with Steffi and Andre is the belief that Andre was able to give him um, and the trust in himself and the, the building his confidence in the sense that yes, he can achieve all these things that he wants to achieve. Um, so that that is sort of the big picture concept. I wasn't able to get down to the little picture though I tried. Um, but again, I appreciate that there there is an element of privacy, even like if you listen to his post-match interviews, 
it almost can come off a little bit um, short or aloof. Uh, and I will say that it's not. I don't it's think. Not. I don't I've think been it, in those in Del Rey and so, I mean, it's not at all. Right. Um, um, but I do think he maybe chests, as my great, great Aunt Ellen used to say, he chests his cards a bit. Um, and so, which I don't think is a bad thing. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why when we see him on the court, he sort of looks like he's done it before, um, yeah. which in particular with young American guys, I feel like sometimes, which Flash is fine. Like I, we like Flash too, but it's nice. It's nice to see someone who's like, oh, wow, he's this, doing all these things for the first time. And he looks like he's an old pro. Well, the so other thing, right, the other thing that I just want a quick comment, David, is that you know, the, the loss to Hachinoff at Wimbledon, which was a heartbreaker and the 13 service breaks in the fifth set. He didn't come off. It's his birthday. He could have been feeling sorry for himself. He had a great attitude about that was obviously genuine about the loss and about he knew he'd still had a really good Wimbledon and was that close to getting into the quarters. And it, it, he's remarkably mature, Blair, don't you think? Uh, yes. And and there is. And he has said along the line, he he has there have been times where he's questioned his mom and dad and, and their decisions on, on you know, which, which way they pointed him in terms of his upbringing and development. So he, he has said that as has Peter, it's like, you know, yes, there were times where he was like, I don't, I don't know that this is what I should be doing, but I feel like everybody ends up on the same page. Um, and so there is support in the journey. Um, and he sort of accepts that each one of these stops is just a stop on the journey um and he sort of digests it and moves on which that part is sure mature i don't know that i do that very well in my life <laughs> so i have a lot of respect uh, for him the three things i i would say about cool calm and collective it's just how how he carries himself um for those that haven't seen the article it's on tennis.com or get the tennis magazine it's a great article great job as always blair i want to jump around to some other topics um, the, the, you can kind of say quick hitters, maybe medium hitters, maybe, but, um, there's a few things I want to hit. So I'll referee, uh, if I need to in between, if we get too long on any one, but, um, we're recording this during the Olympics and I wanted to hear both of your thoughts. I'll start, um, start with you, Steve, just your general thoughts on, on tennis in the Olympics. Obviously it was great. Naomi with the opening ceremony, she actually lost yesterday, the day prior to when this we're recording this. Um, to me, don't get me wrong. I love tennis. I love watching and I am watching it. It's, it's just kind of weird. Same thing with golf, like being an Olympic sport. Um, I just was curious about both of your views on it. And, and Steve, I'll, I'll go with you first. The, tennis in the Olympics and where yeah. it fits, you mean? Well, yeah. I know that some people think it would be, it should be more team shaped, team devised. I, I don't know what, I, I, I don't mind the way they're doing it. But I mean, you've got your singles, doubles and mixed and you can play as much as you want. And I think the sad part this time is obviously the no crowds. Uh, you know, we started to get a little spoiled and we saw the, the Wimbledon full at the end for the finals. And and this has been tough on the players, I think, dealing with that. Who's to know whether we have as many upsets among the women if the crowds had been there, perhaps they could have pulled a few of the favorites through. But I, 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 I've just been happy to get this full coverage on one of those NBC stations and see wall to wall. And what I don't watch live later tonight, I, as soon as I get up in the morning, I catch the rest. And I, I like the thoroughness of the coverage and I like the spirit of the players. 
And Sviantec, you know, I think that said it all, her, you know, breaking into tears after her loss. It was very moving and it showed you how much it means to them. So I, I, I've been pleased to see how it's all evolved. I mean, it's too bad, if, you know, understandable why Rafa didn't want to go over. And certainly Roger's not at this point. He's got to see if he's even going to be able to play the U.S. Open and get a, some preparation. And so that was bad luck in a way. But other, otherwise, the fields are strong and I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I think let me let me just clarify my thoughts. It's because, you know, with tennis, they they play each other every week. Right. And there's there's country to country type competition in Davis Cup and Fed Cup golf. Right. Similar thing. Right. They play each other every week. Um, so that was kind of just my clarification on it. It's really like another tournament. Obviously, it means more to, to the players who represent their country. But we already have that in certain comp um, certain competitions. Blair, I'll, I'll let oh, you know. Claire, you follow me, but I, 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 I get your point, David, and I know there are a lot of people, and initially I like that whole idea, and you know, you could get some really exciting doubles and mixed doubles that you would never see anywhere else. However, I, I get the feeling that the players like it the way it is. I don't, I don't hear a great outcry for the other, but I, I, as, a, as a fan, journalist slash fan, I, I get your point. I love it. <laughs> Sign me up. I, I think, and maybe this is because I work in tennis, but I, I do think sometimes there's this, it's, there's a rinse repeat sense from, from week to week on tour. Uh, and I, even without the fans, just as you were saying, Steve, there's a, there's a different feel. Uh, you have, you know, Max Purcell being thrown in there at the last minute and upsetting Felix Oje Aliassime or Sumit Nagal winning the first I think it was the first singles Olympic match for an Indian player in like 25 years. Um, on the women's side, Marketa Vondrosova taking out Naomi Osaka. I There is an unpredictability to me, which is saying something because in particular on the women's side, <laughs> unpredictability sort of reigns right now. There is an unpredictability in Olympic tennis with all the extra added things thrown in. And, and there's also to me, added interest off the court because of all those emotional things that we were talking about. Even, you know, watching uh, Garbini Muguruza so torn up because she couldn't yeah. pull, you know, help Carla Suarez Navarro to one more Olympic win um, and seeing Carla talk about it and their friendship. The, the, they're not really things we're getting on a week in and week out basis. Um, and, and I just feel like it adds a level of interest and intrigue um that is so cool in my opinion yeah, yeah no all, all all totally valid i would say i i wish we didn't have quite so much unpredictability among the women i've been feeling this way for quite some time <laughs> Up, upsets are nice up to a point but i was sorry Fair. to see like ash Barty. she had she didn't have that spark and spirit that we know is is within her and 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 it was just too soon after Wimbledon so yeah. I, I don't like this and Naomi was terrific for two rounds and then uh, it caught up to her that she hadn't played you know played so little since the French so some of that I I, I just would like to see a few less the men obviously have been so far more predictable and I, I I like that because then you get the matchup later on that you that you were hoping for very true I will say though with the singles players who maybe have a have a tough loss early on the doubles and mixed doubles I mean I I am a I will you know preach from the doubles pulpit all day long like I I feel like it is 
it has such value in particularly in particular on site at an event. Um, I think it's such a nice fans who wouldn't think who might not have any idea that doubles would be fun to watch uh, can go and see maybe one of the best matches of the tournament. But I think having the added weight on doubles with these players who like if it doesn't go well in singles, let's let's see if we can get a medal in doubles. And I feel like it puts a little added uh, added oomph uh, into the doubles, both mixed and, and regular as well, which I love. A hundred percent. Totally agree with you on that point. All right. Next one real quick. We'll start with, uh, we'll start with Blair because Steve has already answered this, but we'll give Steve a chance to hedge if he wants to change. Uh, Blair Hanley, Roger Federer. Do we see him at Wimbledon in singles in 2022? Okay. I, I, I am going to hedge a little bit on this. I think it depends how the rest of this year goes. Um, and I, I think if the rest of the year goes how his initial, the initial part of his comeback has gone, I think the answer is no. Um, so I don't, that's, I, I feel like I'm cheating a little bit. No, that's that. okay. That's okay. But, yeah, Steve, that, you that is, that's what I think. All or, uh... <laughs> you're not cheating. You're just being honest. No, I, I agree with that. I, I believe that my fear is that it just keeps happening all year long, stopping, starting, knee bothering him again. None of us knew at all because he's so good at hiding it that the knee was bothering him during the grass court season. I mean, yes, he had a bad match against Felix and Halley and, and wasn't happy with it, but he didn't talk about the knee. He talked about his attitude. And then we saw him get out of the Manorino match somewhat fortunately in the first round and start to play decently up until he, he lost to Hercot. So I just feel like, that was a bad sign that it happened again. And then the question is, it goes on to the hard courts. Wouldn't the knee perhaps be more vulnerable than ever on the hard courts? So, yeah, I, I lean toward the fact that we probably won't see him next year based on the fact that I don't see evidence that that knee is going to consistently hold up now, even after the two surgeries in 2020, sadly. But on the other hand, what a career. Yeah, we shall see. Yeah. We shall see. Um, I'll stay with Blair on this one. Um, your favorite, you've covered so many events. I, I'm curious, your favorite tournament to cover. Steve, I've had, you know, we've done this with Steve a little bit before um, when we had Mary Carrillo on and they both said Wimbledon. And then they also had a soft spot for the Australian Open too. They both mentioned Australia as well. Curious to hear your thoughts on your favorite tournament to cover. Uh, this is, I promise the Newport Tourism Board has not paid me prior to <laughs> to my appearance here um i love newport i really do are you going to get the the same caliber player there that you're going to get at a slam no but the full experience i mean what what else can you ask for um and and the fact that the fact that there is i mean for again from the working perspective there are no night matches which gives you a little bit more chance to sort of absorb where you are. This again, from a, this is from somebody working the event. Um, thanks to that dew on the grass. <laughs> I don't have to be up till midnight every night, which is nice. Um, but just uh, the added, you know, element of the induction, it's just the best. I, I your will... answer doesn't, your answer doesn't surprise me. And the fact that the very first time you and I met, you've stressed that you how much you love that event it's not shocking yeah. to me you say. and and side note caveat i will say I, I shouldn't say that there you're not going to get the caliber of player there that you would get at a grandstand that is not true across the board obviously in, in terms of the scale of the draw it's going to look a little bit <laughs> different i think that's fair to say um 
Kevin Anderson, listen, couldn't have asked for a better winner there uh, this year. So great for him. But yes, love it. I would also say I've only done one Labor Cup. And I know that doesn't Chicago. really count. Chicago. But it was one of the most electric, maybe the most electric tennis atmosphere I have ever witnessed in my life. And I have been privileged to witness some pretty electric atmospheres. <laughs> You're talking to the one in Chicago, right? Yes. Yeah. So Steve, we were, we, and Blair and I had talked about this on a previous pod, you know, Chicago is such a professional sports oriented city. There's not a lot of colleges that are located in the city. Um, you know, we have two baseball teams, we got a hockey team, NBA team, all professional sports. I was wondering how Chicago would, um, you know, hold up with a professional tennis event like that. It was unbelievable. And the fact that Kevin Anderson played a pivotal role in that weekend. And he went to university of Illinois. He had a lot of fans there, but the United center was packed every session. And it was so much energy. So, so impressed. with. Well, no, I think a lot of, I think a lot of it, 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 the spirit among the players is there. They enjoy it. The, the format really works. And I think that's why one of the main reasons Blair, you would call it electric is that it really moves. I know the other person that shares your view 101% is Gigi Fernandez. Mm-hmm. who's taken some of her groups there. And she says she normally cannot sit and watch tennis for a long time. She never stops watching when she goes to Labor Cup. So I, I, I hear you. Only thing I don't like is that we've got, we have this kind of confusion among with these team events in the sport right now. And Davis Cup has been harmed. And I don't think that was at all the intention of Roger Federer or Tony Godsick, his agent. And I think they're trying to add something great for the game. And look, it's going to be in Boston this year. What you're talking about with Chicago, I think, will be replicated in Boston. I have no doubt about it. But I wish that we didn't have these three events of the ATP Team Cup and then then Davis Cup and Labor Cup. I think it's hard for the public to sort it all out and understand what it all means. But there's no doubt bringing it back to these communities, like bringing it back, bringing big time tennis back to Chicago and now back to Boston, which they have such rich histories, particularly Boston, I think is 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 wonderful particularly Boston. Come on. <laughs> yeah. The, the, uh, the next, uh, the, the next one I want, and I, and I'll start with, with, with Steve on this, you know, we're in the middle of the Olympics and we have one slam left. I, I have to ask it prediction time. Does Novak get it done? Does he, does he win the Olympic gold and does he win New York? Well, who who start start- you, Steve? you go oh, okay. first. Well, I, I think whether he wins the gold or not, he wins the U.S. Open. That's my sense. And I think there's a very good chance that he gets the gold because he seems to have a clear path to the semis. Then he then it's possible he plays Zarev, who so far has looked very sharp in the first couple of rounds. And Zarev is capable at his very best of threatening Novak. But And then the final would be either Medvedev or perhaps Tsitsipas. So I, I think that... Novak is so confident right now, I, uh, but on the other hand, it's best of three. So there's a l- slightly better chance for an upset because of the format. Uh, but either way, I think he's going to come to New York really driven and purposeful and, and determined to get it done there, knowing that nobody could uh, – Golden Slam is one thing, but a Grand Slam is still great, and it still hasn't been done by a man since labor in 69. So I do predict that he will win in New York, and I'm – pretty sure he's going to win this gold as well. What do you think, Blair? I think he has a better chance of winning the calendar Grand Slam than he does of winning the Golden 
slammed. If that is that, yeah, I guess that makes sense. So I, I, but, I I'm yeah. sorry. I'm saying well, then we seem to be on the same page. Yes, I, I think the two out of three sets is a potential game changer. Um, we saw it, I mean, twice at Roland Garros where he was down two sets to love. Yeah. Uh, also Novak from people that I've spoken to from my observations, he is, and I mean this in like the greatest sense of the word, he's a control freak. And I think that, and you have to be, to be that good at what, whatever you do, you have to, and, and in particular in tennis, which is a very, you know, it's an individual sport. It's a selfish sport, if you will. I think he has less control in a COVID Olympics. Uh, he, I believe, wasn't able to bring his stringer, which was a point of, of contention early oh. on. Um, I don't know if he's able to eat exactly how he likes to eat there. I mean, these, these are little things, but we have seen when it looks like Novak is the surest sure thing. And I go back to 2016 uh, when, I, when I, and obviously there was injury involved there too, but when, when things sort of get topsy-turvy for him mentally, we've seen it unravel. Um, and so I do think there is a possibility of that. I think there is more of a possibility of that in the Tokyo atmosphere in two out of three, a two out of three set match. And yeah. no, fair, point, fair point. I will only add to that on the positive end that, you know, his record in masters 1000s of having won them all at least twice. <laughs> He's shown what he can do in best of three. He tends to sort of zero in even more on that opening set. So he knows what he's dealing with, but it'll, it'll be fascinating to see. And I, I, he certainly, I think the, the, again, a saving grace in Tokyo might be that the no crowds oddly could work for him because the crowds tend to root against him. They want the upset. They've never fully appreciated Novak in my view and anywhere in the world. Uh, so uh, oddly, I could see that. And he did a good job with that in the Cincinnati in New York last year when there were no crowds. So we'll see Blair. I think you can make that case either way. I, I do agree with you on that. Can I ask a follow-up on this? Steve, do you think the fact that, I mean, by all accounts, Novak is the king of the Olympic Village, he, there yet, no, there are no fans that could potentially root against him. Also, I, somebody pointed out, and I'm forgetting somebody on Twitter, when he gets to the U.S. Open, whether or not he has the gold medal, there's going to be history on the line, and will people then be cheering for that? And will that be such a reversal from what he is used to that it could potentially throw him off? The reverse psychology, I like that. Uh, you know what? I, I, I think that's a problem he'd like to have, Blair. <laughs> fair, very fair. Don't think there'll be that much of that because for, for some reason, I mean, this, you, you've, you've witnessed it, both of you. And the fact is that Roger and Rafa, the Roger fans t are okay with Rafa and vice versa. But for some reason, Novak had not afforded the same type of, uh, of, uh, uh, of, shall we say, affection yeah. from the fans. And so there could be a small degree of what you're describing in New York. I wouldn't think it's be that prevalent. I would agree. That was a great response. I asked one of my friends from his name's Scott. He's from the Payers and Players podcast. And he said that he's he's in agreement with you guys. He says if he's going to lose one, it's going to be the Olympics. Um, he said basically the same thing. It's two out of three sets. It's more of a sprint than a marathon. And, you know, like Blair said, he was down two sets to love twice in the French Open. So um, we but shall of course see. At Wimbledon, was a little different. Wimbledon was a little smoother passage, lost his first set of the tournament in the first round, and then one more in the final, and otherwise he rolled through it. And 
Uh, I, I, I also get the feeling back on the hard course, particularly in New York, that's where he could peak. And he's had this strange, you're, you're aware of this, Blair, but I mean, eight finals in New York, three wins. So that's for Novak is not up to his standard. It's very surprising historically that he hasn't won more U.S. Opens given his nine Australian and always coming through there. And partly it's the heat in New York versus playing at night a lot in Australia. But somehow I feel like he's going to really peak in, in New York. We're going to see the, the best of the best from Novak in New York. My, my, last, um, my, my last question, I said, if you had to put a number on it, um, we'll end with this. If, if, you know, we got three guys at 20, if you had to put a number on it, all said and done, um, what are we looking at the final total for, for whoever is the most? They, people think obviously Novak is the favorite because he's younger. Um, is 25, is that too aggressive of a number? I'll let Blair start. No. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> um, in short, uh, I, I think that there might also, assuming Serena does not get to 24, I feel like 24 might be a number that Djokovic has in the back of his mind. Who knows? Um, but I do know that, and, and I tweeted about this, I do think he has a, a genuine soft spot for his country. Uh, as as we all do to some extent, but I all I think that there is maybe more of it coming from that Balkan part of the world that has gone through a whole lot. Um, he he has really done a lot. I feel like to, for raising the profile of Serbian tennis, um, and I think he takes that responsibility seriously. And I do think that's part of the reason why he's at the Olympics. But let's be honest, the dude wants every record, every <laughs> title. He, he wants, he, those things matter to him. I mean, I, I feel like you can have Rafa being like, you know, it's so, I just love it. It's, I, I just want to compete my hardest every day or some version of that. Uh, there, there is no doubt where Djokovic stands in terms of his chase to be the best without argument. Steve and Mary have echoed that thought. Exactly. Right, Steve, you and Mary both said the same exact thing. It just means more. It so means records mean yeah. Funny because Rafa shies away from trying to talk about it, and that's just his nature. He takes pressure off himself. I understand that. Novak just puts himself on the line. He's very honest about what he wants to achieve. The next two years are going to be critical. The other important factor, David, I think is that if he does win the slam, forget, regardless, either slam, the, the grand slam or the golden slam, it, there, there'll be, there could be a slight letdown at the start of next year. He's worked so hard to achieve this. It's such a monumental accomplishment if he pulls it off, either one. So it's possible there could be a slight letdown, but that might only cost him a 10th Australian. Then he might win, run off three more in a row next year. So I, I do think 24-25 is very realistic and that he's going to really go at, go at it full force through next year and the year after and see where he stands then. Crazy. And He's going to want to be a comfortable distance from Rafa because Rafa could win another French or two. It's not beyond the realm. So right. Novak's aware of that, that Rafa's always uh, uh, so dangerous at Roland Garros, despite the fact that Novak toppled him this year. So he's going to also want to make sure he's got his distance from Rafa. I have no doubt that's calculated in his mind. Oh, so <laughs> great to see. So we're, we're so lucky to see us. Like you said, win or lose the Olympic gold medal, he's still got New York and, and there's going to be all eyes all eyes on Novak and all eyes on history. Um, I want to thank both of you guys for, for taking time tonight and talking about um, this tennis. Steve, you know, pers on a personal note, Steve, you know how much I enjoy um, you joining me on these. And we've had a blast, you and me, and then obviously bringing on third person such as Blair. 
Um, and, and Blair, I think the first time I met you was in Delray, I think in 2017. We did, a, I think, a Facebook Live with Jack Sock, I think was the first. Uh, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And you, you were always very nice to me and you didn't have to be. Um, and you guys both have just fueled the passion that, that I have for this sport. And I appreciate you guys both supporting me and, and taking time and joining me on doing stuff like this. Great to be on, David. I just want to say, I do think you and I held serve. We did all right tonight, but we were outclassed. Oh, for sure. hundred percent. She added a ton to this podcast, but seriously, Blair, it was, it, it was great fun having you on and hearing your views on the game. And, and I look forward to crossing paths with you sometime in the future. It was great fun. I cannot wait. And, and Steve, next time I'm putting on my blazer for you. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. I love it. <laughs> Thanks so much. Well, well, oh, and Blair, hopefully I'll see you in a couple of weeks because hopefully we'll be in Cincinnati in a couple of weeks. Yes. Lord willing, nothing changes between now and then. Hopefully I will. I Lord will willing, you. nothing changes. Then obviously my favorite tournament, especially leaving Chicago in February, Delray Beach. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and David, by the by the way, thank you for all the kind words. Um, it's a pleasure. I've, there have been a lot of people who have done the same for me when I had no idea at the very beginning, not to say that that was ever you, that was definitely me <laughs> at, at the beginning. I had no clue what I was doing. Uh, and there were so many kind people in tennis who showed me the ropes along the way. Uh, and so I definitely try to pay it forward if I can. No, I appreciate you both so much. Thank you guys and, and look forward to talking to both of you soon. Thank you, David.